Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't, I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Hesslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Mercedes. Here on Miranda Warnings today is David Lett. He's the founder of Above the Law, one of the most widely read and influential websites about law and lawyers. David, welcome. Thanks for having me, David. We're very excited to have you here, David Latt. Um, You had a a very interesting uh, background, uh, including uh, serving as uh, editor and founder of Above the Law. Now you're currently editor-at-large, and I'd want to talk about Above the Law. But you started out as a clerk in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals after graduating from Yale Law School. You then served as an assistant U.S. attorney in New Jersey under then uh, U.S. Attorney Chris Christie, which uh, I'm sure was very interesting. And in 2004, you started writing what would be considered uh, something of a gossipy blog about the federal judiciary called Underneath the Robes, which uh, you wrote anonymously uh, initially, and then eventually uh, you were, uh, it was attributed to you. And then in 2014, you're the author of a fictional book about the law called Supreme Ambitions. So that's quite an eclectic career you've had so far. Uh, Yes, no, that's that's accurate, and uh, it's been a fun ride. And, you know, let's start with uh, Above the Law, which is, is in fact, very influential, uh, often serious, uh, sometimes uh, lighthearted. Uh, it started with you writing it, and now you're the editor at large. You have five writers, fifty columnists. Uh, tell us a little bit about why Above the Law is so uh, important. So when I started Above the Law back in 2006, I was looking for a place to have the conversations that lawyers and law students were having amongst themselves, but that weren't necessarily public or online. Uh, Back then, in 2006, there were many fewer blogs, websites, message boards, and one of my goals also in starting Above the Law was bringing some transparency and clarity to a very important, often opaque, frequently misunderstood profession, namely the legal profession. So that was really my goal when I started Above the Law. It was initially just me for the first two years. I pretty much was writer, editor, copy editor, managing editor, correspondent. I pretty much did everything. And then uh, two years in, uh, my first colleague, Ellie Mistal, joined me. And then pretty much since then, every two or so years, we've been uh, joined by another full-time colleague, We have also added a lot of uh, outside columnists, many of them practicing lawyers. They can give us the perspectives from the trenches that we as full-time writers and journalists no longer have. And we have, as you mentioned, about 50 or so of those outside columnists as well. So uh, that is, in short, how Above the Law started and how it has grown over the past 12-plus years we've been around. And, of course, Above the Law covers uh, all things legal, Uh, you know, law firms, lawyers, Uh, law schools, bar associations. Uh, When you originally started writing Above the Law, there was uh, something of an emphasis on the culture of large law firms, big law. Um, How have you seen that culture change in the 12 years since Above the Law started? So I think big law culture has changed dramatically over those 12 years. One of the major events precipitating that change was the Great Recession, 
which of course claimed some law firms and also caused a lot of lateral movement. I think the overarching trend in the world of big law over these past 12 years has been just that, greater movement of lawyers, and I would say decreased loyalty, less loyalty uh, of firms to their people. There were a lot of layoffs uh, during the Great Recession. Uh, law firms didn't necessarily stand by all of their associates or staff during that, those hard times. And also less loyalty from the lawyers back to the firms, which is why you'll see partners from very old line white shoe firms leaving firms where they've been practicing for decades uh, to go to different places, uh, often for more money. So I think that has been one major change, just this decreased loyalty and increased mobility. And there have been a host of other changes. Uh, there's been, of course, a transformative effect of technology, which you as an IP lawyer, I'm sure, are familiar with. There have been uh, some increases in diversity of lawyers, although perhaps not as much as one might expect, and a whole host of other changes. But I think the major change has been that greater mobility and reduced loyalty. Well, uh, David, you mentioned technology, and I'd like to talk a little bit about that and how it's impacted you know, the profession and specifically some of the impact on, on bar associations. Uh, you know, it used to be uh, many years back, if you wanted to connect with other lawyers, uh, you would join the bar association. And that was your method of raising your profile and of making connections. And I know uh, you've, you've written about and talked about the importance of connections. With technology uh, in the law, uh, and technology in general, you know, attorneys coming out of law school can now make connect connections through social media, uh, through uh, internet. Uh, and so the traditional methods of going out and making a name for yourself have changed. Uh, and what are, you, what are you seeing in that regard about how uh, people make connections in the law that's uh, perhaps different from 10 or 15 years ago? I think you're absolutely right, David, that in many ways, technology and social media and other forms of communication have made things more challenging in many ways for bar associations because people can forge online connections that they used to make in person. Uh, I'm still, despite having made a career out of being an online commentator, a big fan of in-person meetings. I think sometimes there's just so much you can accomplish very quickly in, uh, in an in-person meeting that it could take many emails or tweets or what have you to deal with. And I think also there is still a human aspect and element to this profession that's very important. And so I think that bar associations and the in real life IRL, so-called events they hold, are very, very important. Uh, but you're right that there's no doubt that in this day and age, with more technology, more methods of communication and networking, and more claims on lawyer and law student attention, uh, bar associations do have to step up their game, and they have to deliver more value uh, than ever to their members in order to make a compelling case for people to join. Well, David, you, of course, have been, uh, you know, involved in looking at issues regarding the legal profession and sometimes uh, a critic uh, and champion of bar associations. What do you see uh, where bar associations, uh, whether it be the New York State Bar Association or, or any other uh, bar association, what do you see where they can uh, do a better job? Where How do they need to adapt? Hmm, you know, that's, I mean, that's, that's an interesting uh, question. I do think that a lot of them are adapting very well in the sense that they do need to become more proficient with technology and other modes of communication. And 
your podcast is an excellent example of a bar association embracing a new, uh, or I guess you could debate how new podcasts are, but a newly popular form of communication. I think that uh, bar associations should uh, follow in your example, having more podcasts, being more active on social media. Uh, you know, there are 50 different states. There are different bars. Some are uh, unified. Some are uh, voluntary. So it's hard to over. It's hard to generalize too much about them. Uh, but I think embracing technology and communicating with members in different ways is important. I think that another uh, issue that uh, bar associations should do, and I know that the New York State Bar has certainly been doing this, is making sure that they have some outreach to uh, law students and young lawyers, because in many ways, uh, it's no longer automatic that you'll join a bar association. When I graduated from law school, it was pretty much a given that you would join one or more bar associations. And nowadays, I don't know that it's necessarily seen as the mandatory almost thing it once was. And so I think bar associations do need to make an effort to uh, get their message out and their usefulness out to uh, young lawyers and even law students. Yeah, I certainly agree with that, David. And we are seeing issues when we go to law schools. I mean, the New York State Bar Association has in implemented a uh, Pathways to the Profession where every law student in New York State uh, can become a member of the New York State Bar Association for free just by being one of uh, a student in one of the 15 law schools in New York State. But when we go and talk to law students and, and newly admitted attorneys, the quite and we ask them to join the Bar Association, the question they ask is why? Why is it relevant? And that's the question that we need to answer uh, for them. They are finding, I think, through technology that uh, perhaps they don't, they don't have as great of a need for the Bar Association as they had in the past and the Bar Association. And we are trying to change that so that uh, they can see the relevance uh, of it. But as you said, when you when you started practicing, and not that long ago, but when you started practicing, you would join the Bar Association to make those connections. And we're finding that law students and young lawyers have let, are compelled less to do that, that they have other means of making the connection. And uh, I agree with you that the connection the personal connection uh, is something that is of crucial importance to relationships. You know, it's interesting, David. There's also, I think, more competition for bar associations, even in terms of those in-person uh, relationships. Because one thing I've noticed in the past couple of years covering the profession is uh, inns of court are increasingly popular. Uh, they're often specialized in a particular subject matter or organized around some theme. And like bar associations, they do do in-person events. And so a number of people are joining inns of court. Uh, they're not, you know, they don't exist in every market or every state even, I think. But for places where they do exist, some people go to them as well for some of the things that they might look to normally from a bar association, uh, whether it's networking, educational programs, uh, et cetera. So it is a, it's, it's, it's a, I mean, in some ways it's great that people have so many ways to connect with each other, uh, but it does mean that uh, there is this fragmentation of, of attention in a way. I mean, in some ways it's like the media world. It's great that there's so much information out there, but it's, it, you know, we in the media, if we want people to read our stuff, have to work harder and harder uh, to get paid attention to because there's just so much else out there. Right. You've also looked closely at uh, the law school 
uh, law schools and uh, their methods. Uh, you talked a, a little bit before about above the law being about, uh, in some respects, transparency. And you've, I think, you know, opened the curtain on some issues related to law schools. Uh, give us your thoughts on the current state of legal education and law schools and, and what direction you think uh, they're going in, whether it be positive or, or, or not so positive. So I'm actually a bit of an optimist. I think that one of the critiques of legal education that Above the Law was known for uh, several years ago was criticizing law schools that charge too much money and don't deliver enough in terms of employment outcomes. Law schools where students get six figures into debt and then can't pass the bar and can't get a good legal job. And I think that that conversation that we participated in uh, has certainly made its way to the broader media world and, and beyond. Uh, you know, there's been coverage in the New York Times and The Economist and Slate and certainly discussed in bar associations as well. And I think uh, as a result, uh, law schools are being more transparent about their employment outcomes, partly because they're required to by uh, ABA uh, disclosure uh, requirements that they have to put on their website. They have to be uh, honest and open about the types of jobs that their graduates get, bar passage rates, et cetera. Uh, so I think law schools are becoming more transparent. And as a result, uh, people have a, can make a more informed choice about whether to devote uh, three years of their life and a whole lot of money towards uh, getting a law degree. So I think in some ways it's good uh, that uh, there is this more, uh, there's more knowledge about uh, law school and the value proposition of law school. I also think law schools are getting better in terms of their own uh, internal workings. I think that they are embracing technology. They are having uh, tech incubators. They're having clinical programs. They, too, are trying to deliver more value to law students as well, because in the face of these declining enrollment figures that we've seen in the past couple of years, uh, there's been an uptick recently. But for a number of years, there was just declining and declining enrollment. Uh, law schools have to demonstrate to potential students uh, the usefulness and value of what they provide. So I'm actually an optimist. I think that legal education is moving in the right direction. Well, we've, we've had a little bit of a vetting, I think, with law schools when we had the uh, economic concerns uh, around 2007, 2008, uh, I think the spigot started to get turned off a little bit about pumping out uh, lawyers from, from law schools. That was, uh, I think, uh, number one. Uh, so that, as you indicated, so law schools were, were having students go through and, and then they were uh, getting out of law school and they weren't able to place them uh, in in jobs that were uh, suitable. And so we had a real problem. We had a basically an overload of uh, lawyers because uh, because of the financial crisis. Second and third year lawyers were getting laid off. And now someone coming out of law school was competing, not with their classmates, but with, you know, second and third year uh, lawyers that were experienced. And then on top of that, we had this uh, just extraordinary tuition increase on uh, at law schools that was nowhere comparable to what the average cost of inflation was. And we had law students coming out with this crippling uh, law school debt uh, to come to the promised land of being a lawyer. And I think the, that confluence of events, I think, whittled down some of the uh, desire for people to go into uh, the law. 
Oh, absolutely. And we've seen shrinking law school class sizes and even a few law schools uh, closing their doors, which would have been unheard of uh, a decade ago. So this is a changing environment for legal education. Right. And, I, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, so we have, yeah. you know, I go and talk to law students and you have law students that are in there because they have a passion for the law uh, or a particular area of the law, which is a, which is a good thing. Um, yep. And now I know you have a passion for the federal judiciary. You worked as a as a clerk in the Ninth Circuit. You wrote about uh, a fictional story about uh, the uh, being the federal courts. Uh, tell me a little bit about your thoughts on on where you think the federal judiciary is going, the nomination process uh, for uh, judges on the bench, and just your general perspective on that. So uh, it's interesting. You're right, uh, David. I've always been fascinated by the federal judiciary. Uh, going with my theme of transparency, I think it is a very important branch of government and often uh, not well understood. And so I really have tried to uh, shine a light on the workings of this third branch of government. Uh, I do think that more attention is being paid now to the federal judiciary. Certainly, there is more media coverage of the nominations process than there was in the past. Uh, right now, I would say it's quite interesting. I think that uh, judges may in some ways be the most important legacy of President Trump. A lot of the other things he's talked about um, haven't happened or uh, probably won't happen with a new uh, Democratic-controlled House. But I think with judges who passed through the Senate instead, uh, Trump will continue to remake the courts. He, he appointed two new Supreme Court justices, uh, dozens of lower court judges, and uh, these folks are uh, generally uh, very conservative, um, very smart, and very young. So I think that that is one shift we'll see in the federal judiciary, uh, I think. And uh, it'll probably happen when we have a Democratic president again. I think there's going to be a greater emphasis on ideology, um, for better or worse. Uh, and also youth is going to be prioritized. And, of course, still credentials, because people do want to pass muster with the ADA, which rates judicial nominees. But uh, I think these are some long-term trends that we will see. You mentioned increased media coverage of the nominating process. And uh, I think certainly that's the case. I, I wonder if that has led to an improved nominating process or or perhaps a more polarized nominating process uh, than we I, had in I, the past. Yep. I think you're right on both. I think on the one hand, it's improved in the sense that we can learn more about these folks than we could before. We can find their old articles. We can go online uh, and find the records and dockets of the cases they worked on. So this information is available, more information about the nominees. On the other hand, it has led to this echo chamber. It has led to this polarization. It has led to a lot of uh, flame wars on social media even over the subject of judges. Certainly you can see the extreme polarization that happened uh, during the course of the Kavanaugh nomination uh, last year. Uh, so I think you're right. I think it's both. On the one hand, there's more knowledge and information, which is great. On the other hand, there is more partisan rancor. You know, the uh, above the law uh, work is often very serious, uh, sometimes goes deeply in depth on issues that are not getting coverage, uh, but also uh, it's sometimes lighthearted and pokes a little fun at the, the often ridiculousness of uh, the legal profession. Uh, tell me, is, is there a story that kind of stands out in your mind that, we're, that just really points out how silly the law can be sometimes? 
Well, you know, it's funny uh, that you mentioned that. I do think that one of our goals also at Above the Law is to entertain, honestly. Uh, the legal profession can be very serious, dry, uh, sometimes uh, even uh, suffocating. And so we do try to find the more interesting or entertaining or human interest aspects of the, of the legal world. I think one story that jumps out to me and... Uh, certainly as an IP lawyer, maybe you'd appreciate this, was a situation where there was a law firm that was honored by Fortune magazine as being a great workplace. And they commissioned this little song uh, to celebrate it. And it was a very cheesy, horrible, sort of 80s style song that we got a hold of because people at the firm were sort of embarrassed the firm had done this. And so we actually posted it online and poked fun at it. And then I think it kind of shows how lawyers and law firms can take themselves too seriously. Uh, we were suddenly threatened uh, by the law firm with uh, copyright infringement. Now, look, you could argue about fair use or not, but what ended up happening was this little thing, which would have been a single story on Above the Law, look at this silly little lame law firm uh, song. Once they threatened us with copyright infringement and it became this big, big thing and got picked up by other websites, it eventually wound up in the New York Times. And I still remember the headline to this day in the business section. It was uh, unauthorized enjoyment of song irks law firm. So that was a situation where I think lawyers kind of made things worse. Uh, they should have just let this roll off their back. Instead, they made a big deal out of it, and it ended up being even more bad publicity than they thought. Um, so that's kind of like an example of a funny story about lawyer missteps. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I think general, as a general rule, law firm songs are not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <There's, laughs> I've never really seen a good one. <laughs> I've never heard it and said, you know, that's really, that's a good song. I'm, I'm going to want to go to that. I'm going to want to go to that firm. <laughs> Now you've you've been affiliated with a number of of podcasts, and there's one I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, you're the legal consultant for Radio Lab, right? Radio Lab presents, and they have a podcast called More More Perfect, right? And so I've only been an occasional consultant. I think my colleague Ellie Mistal is really much more involved in it. Uh, but yes, it's a great podcast, and uh, I have uh, certainly helped out from time to time. And w w the reason I bring it up is because. They have a series of podcasts where they have artists and musicians interpreting the 27 amendments to the Constitution, yes. which is I thought, yep. which is also kind of, uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting, but also kind of hilarious. Uh, and it's a brilliant project. People think of Schoolhouse Rock. How can you take these abstract concepts and make them relatable to people? And music is often a great way of doing that. Yeah, so I, th I listened to it. I thought it was great. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, it's great at, uh, great to play at parties, certainly. <laughs> now I want to get back to your early days. You served as assistant U S attorney in New Jersey when Chris Christie was the U S attorney. What was that experience like? So, uh, Chris Christie, uh, hired me. And then, uh, eventually when I left the office, uh, he was still U S attorney at the time after I outed myself as the author of this uh, gossipy, irreverent blog uh, in an interview with uh, Jeffrey Tubin of The New Yorker. Uh, so I... Underneath the robes, you, yes. were, you were writing as a blog, uh, and nobody knew that it was you. Uh, that's Yes, that's pretty much about it. Although uh, there is a slight rub there, uh, which again might uh, tie into the issue of technology. Uh, I didn't know about IP addresses at the time, uh, IP addresses uh, attached to your computing sessions. And right. so I had actually inadvertently 
given out these digital breadcrumbs that led people to me. So there were some people who, by the time I gave the interview to Jeff, had figured out who I was, mm. which is partly why I decided to actually give the interview. Uh, I sort of thought, you know what, if I'm eventually going to be outed, I would rather go out in the pages of The New Yorker than be outed by someone on their random blog. Right, so uh, right. that's sort of the backstory there. But uh, in terms of uh, Chris, he was a very successful U.S. attorney. I think that his rocky tenure as governor, Bridgegate, his low approval ratings, I think, have uh, certainly changed his reputation. Uh, but he was a very successful U.S. attorney, and uh, which is kind of his platform to uh, how he got into the um, governor's mansion. Uh, he was he was really uh, he he uh, he was. Uh, he let us he let us do our jobs. Uh, he was he picked good people and let them do their work. Uh, he knew what he didn't know uh, back then. Uh, he was mainly a civil litigator when he took that position. And so he surrounded himself by people who were experts in criminal law and he often relied on their judgment. Uh, he did a reorganization of the office that I think uh, a lot of people thought uh, made sense. And he was also very personable. He was the kind of U.S. attorney who would try to make it to the farewell event, drinks, dinner, whatever it was, for pretty much every uh, line assistant, every AUSA who, who left the office. Uh, so he was, um, I think he was not the same person that people know today, perhaps. Uh, I think he, he was he was very, he was a popular U.S. attorney. Now, David, you've had a very uh, interesting and eclectic career and, and in many ways innovative. Uh, you've been ahead of the curve on a, a lot of uh, a lot of areas pertaining to the law and the legal profession. Uh, what's next? What's next for you? What's on the horizon? Oh, so, well, for me personally, uh, you mentioned earlier I had the title of editor-at-large, uh, which is because after a dozen or so years of being managing editor and being in the trenches, uh, my husband and I had a baby about a year ago, and I wanted a job that would lend itself more to a certain, you know, elusive work-life balance. Uh, so I moved into this position called editor-at-large, where I write less frequently and I am uh, less reactive. I'm not really on top of breaking news now. Uh, and so that has allowed me to sort of balance out my parental responsibilities and also uh, still continue to work with Above the Law. In terms of what the future holds, uh, I don't know. I would love to do another book. I had a lot of fun writing Supreme Ambitions, my my novel set in the federal judiciary. Uh, but I'm open to new adventures. I, uh, I, I think that these are exciting times, you know, challenging times, but exciting times for both law and media. And uh, I'm really open to wherever the road takes me. Well, David, they are exciting times, and we greatly appreciate you coming on Miranda Warnings to share your perspectives and insights on the legal profession and its direction. We have a feature on Miranda Warnings called Music, Book, or Movie. Can you share a music uh, performance, a book, or movie that's uh, important to you? Well, it's not legal, but I have to say my favorite movie is uh, All About Eve, uh, the story of uh, an aspiring actress and her mentor, perhaps rival, uh, in, in the form of uh, an older actress, uh, Betty Davis, stars as, as Marco Channing in it. And uh, that template of a younger woman coming up through a profession and an older woman at the peak of her power is in some ways 
the template I used for my novel, which features a young idealistic law clerk going to work for a very powerful, uh, ambitious woman judge. And so uh, it's a surprisingly modern movie. If you uh, watch it, even though I think it was from 1950, the dialogue is, it, it feels like contemporary dialogue. It's kind of uh, snarky at times. It's quick. It's witty. Uh, it's really a treasure. I, I urge people to go uh, watch it if, if they haven't. It's, uh, I, I can't, I've watched it so many times. I forget how many times I've seen it. Well, okay. We'll give All About Eve another look. I appreciate that, David Ladd. And if someone wants to see how that might be, uh, that theme might be applied to the law, they can take a look at your book, Supreme Ambitions from 2014. David Ladd, thank you very much for being with us on Miranda Warnings. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me, David. This has been the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings for all things legal and some that aren't. <laughs>